Today in the show, we're talking about military sexual trauma. Not an easy topic. It was a very difficult interview for me to do um, because it is such a sensitive topic. And uh, I have my own story on military sexual trauma, something that happened to me in basic training, and I shared it. That was not easy. So trigger alert, I share a personal story, something happened to me. Not easy to listen to, wasn't easy to say, but it happened, so I shared it. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. This is so important. There are so many people that feel completely alone when it comes to sexual trauma. So do share this, that there is hope, there is healing, and there are resources for healing. Thank you. In three, two, one. Coming to us from Cape Coral, Florida, Dr. Sam Mills. Thanks for being here so much. We had some technical difficulties getting the ball rolling here, but you got us all working on your on your cell phone now, so now we're good to go. I so appreciate you being on the show. This is an incredibly important topic, uh, talking about military sexual trauma. Uh, it's a glaring omission on this show, for sure, 65 episodes or so, and uh, this is the first time we've ever spoken about it, although it has been suggested to me that it's pretty important. Now, how long have you been working um, in the world of MST? I joined the Fargo VA in t- 2014, so since 2014. And the MST conversation, it must be one of the tougher ones to have uh, with stigma and everything else within the military. Absolutely. You know, well, and not just in the military, the civilian world, too. Um, There are, you know, the statistics around reporting uh, consistently show that people underreport. I I think in in the case of MST, um, there are multiple factors that also come into play with that. I, uh, you know, the the latest statistics say that one in three women in the military are victims of MST and one in 100 men in the military are victims of MST. Although in talking to survivors, they would say that it's probably actually more like one in six, like the civilian uh, numbers Um, that, that, number can also be misleading, right? It seems like there are quite a bit fewer male uh, victims or survivors. However, you have to look at there are fewer women in the military in general, so that becomes a little bit misleading. So the numbers are are relatively high. Um, Yeah, you have have different influences on on people coming forward and the, the military has extra layers of that so certainly one is mental health stigma in general coming forward and and talking about any kind of mental health issue um, you have uh, military culture which impacts that as well which is multi-layered right so part of it is that if you join the military you are you know, you're tough, you can take it, you can handle it, you're a warrior. Um, and then also uh, that notion that you don't, you don't rock the boat. There's a mission here and you don't, you know, you don't tell on anybody else, certainly not somebody in authority because that could also come back and somehow haunt your military career. Um, where I worked, there's also, uh, I was in the Midwest 
So there's Midwest culture, which tends to be very stoic. Um, so lots of things keep people from coming forward. At the at the Fargo VA where I uh, where I was, uh, we were on the fourth floor of the hospital, and I told people that in my mind the bravest journey that they ever took was pressing the button on the ground floor and crossing that metal threshold on the fourth floor. Um, that's what a warrior is to me, is fighting against all of those things that say, don't talk about this, don't come uh, and, and share this information, and yet you do it anyway. How I got into Operation Tango Roma is, is through peer support groups, and there is a MST peer support group, a very, very private one for obvious reasons, um, that's available here as well. Are there peer support groups uh, in your area or within the military for MST? There are, yeah. Um, peer support is a huge part of VA services and uh, an integral part of the mental health team. Um, you know, we have we have psychologists, we have social workers, we have uh, psychiatric nurses, we have psychiatrists, um, all working together. Um, but the peer support folks that we had, I think, were. Uh, a crit- very critical component of our care because sometimes that, what again, was the way in. Um, veterans felt more comfortable talking to somebody else that had walked the same path um, even prior to coming and talking to, you know, the professional with all the, uh, you know, the letters after their name. And quite often that would be the way that we would actually get referrals in because the peer support specialists would uh, talk us up and also talk about how they had gained help by working with a mental health professional. There are different types of peer support out there. Um, When you say peer support in this world, what does it look like and how would you define it? So the peer support specialists at the VA are, um, are veterans who have completed uh, some form of mental health treatment with the VA and um, again, they're they're an employee. Um, they uh, their credentials sometimes are are having a mental health background, but not always. Um, their their credentials are that they've got street cred. You know, they they uh, suffered with some things. They sought help. They completed treatment and gained benefit from it. So they, they often had a lot more flexibility than we did as well. Like they, they would go out into the community and meet with people where they were. Um, they, would, they would engage in um, different activities, go, you know, take guys bowling, or they would take somebody to a doctor appointment that felt like they uh, were having difficulty doing that. So I, I just can't stress enough how much I relied on those men and women. So that sounds like activity-based peer support, uh, where you're just simply there, and you're there in a safe capacity, non-judgmental, uh, not saying the wrong things, but and, and being good at listening. Uh, the other type of peer support that uh, what we've been doing and what I uh, came into is more of a group facilitation. There's the one-on-one, but uh, there's a psych ed piece to it. So we will talk about books like The Four of Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz or The Five Love Languages. Um, uh, and the beginning, it would be a, 
basically two hour group meetings and uh, there would be the check-ins like how, how's everybody doing? What are your wins and what are your losses here over the last couple of weeks since we've seen each other? What are you struggling with? And um, so that we know how to bend it. And then we'll talk about different lessons um, on the show list for Tango Romeo. You'd see some of those like the rule of five and um, identity versus rule theory, different uh, psych ed lessons. Is there any of that um, in your peer support world as well? Uh, absolutely. Yep. Uh, they they would uh, they would meet as a, a group, um, and and as a as a support group, uh, they would also the, do one on one. You know, they they go meet somebody at a coffee shop and actually do some education around um, the different the different kinds of interventions that were available. Um, but a lot of times it's, I almost liken it sometimes to the idea of like an AA sponsor, you know, um, it was somebody again that shared their own experience, strength and hope, uh, with someone else. Um, so yeah, one-on-one and, and group kinds of modalities available. Peer support can be so dangerous <laughs> if it's not done right. Um, it's, it's truly vulnerable sector, uh, when you're dealing with somebody who is on the edge or on the ledge. Uh, what are some of the do's and don'ts of peer support, especially when it's uh, when somebody is acute? Sure. Um, well, they don't pretend to be um, psychologists or psychiatrists. Um, again, they're they're sharing their own experience, strength, and hope. If anybody was ever. Um, in an acute state, uh, like you're mentioning, we, you know, we had team meetings, we had, uh, we had on the spot huddles, uh, that we would call them. Uh, so our peer support people would, would often present, um, at those meetings or, or come do a, a mental health huddle and talk about who they were concerned about. And, you know, depending on, um, the level of concern, every VA has, uh, has a suicide prevention coordinator um, and also an MST coordinator. And those people uh, would reach out, um, do safety uh, checks if needed, that kind of thing. So, In the world of MST, what are some of the biggest misunderstandings about it? So... I think, sort of as I alluded to before, um, you know, that there's this somehow in there this idea that it's not something to to report, um, that it's going to um, go negatively, go south somehow. It's going to uh, ruin your career, and certainly, you know, there are people that were. Um, used and abused by people in power and had some of those repercussions. Um, we've come a long way. Uh, you know, there's, there are MST screenings for every veteran now. Um, and the, you know, having done also some work with active duty Air Force at an Air Force base uh, after leaving the VA, every, every doctor visit, uh, they're screening for that too. And there are um, military sexual uh, trauma folks there too for active duty. You know, there's a, a person assigned to take those, those complaints. Um, I think 
you know, hearing hearing the stories over the years, you know, there were times where it, it didn't go well to report, uh, where further harassment happened or people were, uh, you know, quote unquote, kicked out of the military. I don't see that happening as much now. How has the conversation changed? Uh, like, when did the door sort of open up that people could talk about MST within the military? Uh. Uh, more recently than I than I would like, I think you know it's probably been um, within the last ten years that more attention's been paid to it. Um, the coordinator positions uh, being mandatory uh, within both active duty and at the VA. Uh, Is it still a hot potato? Are people trying to pretend it's not happening? As far as the the leadership is concerned. You know, I I can't I can't speak to um, what what's happening on the the ground. I can only speak to what's reported to me um, by by the military member or the veterans. Um, the, so the the short answer is if I uh, if I go with what's told to me, it is still a hot potato. Absolutely. It's no different up here in Canada, um, from what I've been told. And I am ignorant on the subject, which is why I'm so glad to have you on here today. And and I don't even know the right questions to ask because um, I just have not been learning about this world. And and that's the case in general. You know, uh, that's why it's so important for us to have this conversation today. Um. Is MST broken into categories or, or, or types when you're dealing with it? So, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the definitions of, um, of MST fall within, sure. I mean, there's, it's all the same umbrella, but MST can be, um, uh, sexual harassment over time. It can be, um, it can be out and out sexual assault. Um, there are MST survivors that have higher rates of post-traumatic stress, and they tend to more often be diagnosed actually with complex um, uh, PTSR. So, um, higher rates of medical issues associated with MST. Um, and that's a really interesting thing as well, um, if I can riff on that a little bit. It's a little bit away from your um, your question. But, you know, I, I ran a group for uh, male survivors of military sexual trauma. And I would say a good 90% of them were also service-connected for physical health conditions. And to a man, they... Uh, would tell me that they believed that that was directly related to their trauma. And I got to thinking about that, and I believed them 100%. I just, I saw it so often. Um, If you think about the role of trauma, right? So one of the the defining things for diagnosing somebody, um, you know, with our diagnostic manual, which calls it PTSD, is that people have that higher arousal state, right? They're triggered by things. They're, um, they're, they're in almost a constant state of 
fight or flight response, right? The sympathetic nervous system is going crazy. And when that is activated, you know, we want that in the case of being chased by a bear, right? We're going to fight like hell or we're going to run like hell. It's all survival of the species. So we're sending out high-powered hormones. We're sending out adrenaline and cortisol and norepinephrine, and that gears us up to be able to do that. Well, in the case of the bear, we are safe somehow, and that dissipates. When people have these trauma histories, they tend to be activated at some level all the time with that. So you have this chemical cocktail kind of circling around your in the circulatory system and hitting, you know, hitting the organs, right? So absolutely. Do I believe that someone's heart problems could have been related to that? Yeah. They've been under that chemical, you know, that neurochemical and hormonal uh, cavalcade for so long that it's impacting that chronic pain. Absolutely. You know, um, IBS, migraines, those kinds of things. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's, it's more than, it's bigger than, oh, there's this mental health condition that's associated with this. Um, where we, you know, so treatment is often kind of a multifaceted kind of thing. But unattended, unattended that, that condition can lead to a, a host of problems. I've even had uh, psychiatrists not realize that IBS and PTSD or uh, other trauma-related injuries are, are connected. And I just shook my head. <laughs> I couldn't believe, like, how do you not know that? Mm-hmm. Are there any other symptoms that somebody would simply not guess? Uh, some unusual symptoms when it comes to MST. And are MST symptoms different from PTSD symptoms? Um, there, there are, um, obviously there's a lot of similarities. Um, one of the things that, uh, sometimes can go unrecognized, uh, and this is part of actually sometimes the interview, um, that, uh, folks go through is, um, sexual side effects, um, also, um, uh, reproductive organ kinds of um, uh, symptoms as well. So that can tend to, and a lot of times the gastrointestinal is part of that. You know, it's kind of located in, in lower body. Um, so we would, we would see that. So um, directly related to the, the areas that were traumatized in a, in a sexual assault. So. When it comes to somebody's level of sexual activity, uh, I would imagine that it could affect in both directions, either have somebody be hypersexually active or shut down completely. Is that uh, accurate? You're correct. You're correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and and in the case of – so, you know, so my, my professional passion was working with uh, male veterans with MST because I think that – it had been a uh, sort of an, an un, unrecognized, I don't want to say unrecognized, but um, just unattended to as much as the female MST for, for years. Um, and I, I would see that, that variety in the spectrum of responses with my male veterans. Um, sometimes um, hypersexuality in an attempt to kind of uh, perhaps assert themselves, um, as masculine, as in control, um, 
and of course, like you said, uh, and then some folks being more shut down because any kind of uh, thoughts of sexual activity would re-traumatize them. So, uh, you know, there's and I and I, I there's no litmus test, right, to kind of say who's going to do who's going to do which response, but definitely, yeah, both ends of the spectrum. Well, I uh, have experienced it personally when it's male-on-male sexual assault and the other side of it is trying to prove that you're not gay, Uh, especially in the early 90s when people actually gave a shit what your sexuality was. And uh, I wouldn't want to be a gay person who came out of the closet in 1993. You know, that would have been very difficult back then. And nowadays in in, uh, the military, nobody cares anymore. Nobody cares at all. Um, But... That is something that I have personally seen and personally experienced where there's male-on-male sexual assault, then you're forever trying to prove to yourself that that's not you. Right, right. Um, And and I think, again, when we were talking about kind of what makes that so difficult for people when I was talking about, yeah, uh, veterans seeking help – that that is one of the the things that kept them from crossing that elevator threshold was the idea that they would have been perceived as as gay and kind of fighting against those uh, you know stereotypical masculine kinds of things that say we don't talk about this because we wouldn't ever want to be perceived this way. Are there some gray areas um, where? when the definition of MST, like, is there sort of a gray area? Like, is it or isn't it MST? You know, um, when, when we, uh, so the, the M part is given, right? So it occurred, um, during, during military service. Um, we don't second guess people when they're reporting sexual trauma. Um, which is one thing that we're doing right. So when a veteran comes forward and um, reports MST, they are immediately connected with an MST coordinator. And, you know, it's, it's one of the things that automatically connects you to services at the VA. It's not one of those things that you have to be service connected for, like some of the, you know, the medical conditions. Um, There are, like I said, there are certainly uh, different experiences that people have. But if you come in and you're talking about harassment or you're talking about rape or or other forms of sexual assault, um, we believe you and we want to help you. What we look at, right, is, okay, how do we do that? You've you've been brave enough to come and talk to us about this. how is it? How is it impacting your life, right? Um, how is it impacting your functioning, um, whether professionally, personally, health-wise, and how can we? How can we assist you in those areas? Um, so again, I think we've come a long way with that. I think um, I'm just making notes as as I'm listening to you, and I think a, a better way of me asking the question is. When the perpetrators are using words like or phrases like, oh, we were just having fun. Oh, we were just teasing. Oh, it was just a prank. It's no big deal. What are some examples of things that people think are fun teasing or a prank that is not fun teasing or a prank? It's just flat out wrong. Um, 
any any time you are asserting yourself against someone against their will, right, or coercing them and having some kind of a power differential, um, it goes back to no means no, right? Um, if you are un- if you are uncomfortable with what's happening and you've asked people to stop and they are, um, or you're afraid to ask them to stop because, again, of a power differential or pure numbers and their safety concerns, that, I mean, that's a definition, right? No means no. Um, and that unwanted attention or that unwanted coercion or, um, you know, uh, people um, uh, dreading going to work because they know they're going to walk in and the other people in their shop are going to say sexually explicit things or, or sexually uncomfortable things, uh, comment on their parents. Um, you know, again, how, how is that? How is that okay if you're constantly making someone feel scared or uncomfortable or uh, angry, um, afraid to go to work, afraid to come out of their dorms, afraid to be in their dorms? It's uh, it's not necessarily a prank when someone is is scared, sad, you know, um, limited in what they're engaging in. There's no lighthearted, you know, there is no lighthearted sexual harassment. We know that now, you know, it's not a, uh, things are, things in the workplace in the civilian world are prohibited as well. So, um, not a prank. Not a prank. And the reason I ask that is because that's how it all often gets dismissed in my own personal experience. And, um, and when I hear others that have been through something similar and, uh, for the purpose of the audience, I will share, uh, what I shared with you uh, before we got going. When I was in basic training, uh, I walked through a door and I just happened to be the guy I wasn't targeted. I just happened to be the guy that walked through the door at, at exactly the wrong time. And the prank of the day, uh, that they thought was a prank was to grab whoever comes through there, strip them naked, and stick a um, industrial vacuum cleaner on their genitals while it's running. And uh, and I was the lucky contestant that happened to walk through the door. I had no idea what was going going on. I was stripped naked, and a vacuum cleaner, a little roto rooter <laughs> that uh, uh, was placed on me, and I was kicking and screaming fighting with everything that I had and uh, it didn't matter. And uh, that is not a prank. When somebody is saying no, no they are fighting. They're screaming at you like, don't you freaking dare you son of a, and you're fighting mm-hmm. with everything that you have. Uh, that is not funny. It is not a pleasant experience and it's not okay. But that's uh, that and things that are similar to that are not uncommon, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's meant, the act was meant to demean or degrade. Um, and that's not funny. It's not funny. And yeah. now, would you call that sexual? Because there, it, it, there was no, um, like, hey, we're 
uh, attracted to you uh, a component of it. It was just what they thought would be funny. So, but because of uh, being stripped naked and my genitals are involved, uh, does that still qualify as as a sexual trauma? Did you perceive it as a sexual trauma? Mm, that's an interesting. No, I wouldn't say so. I just uh, I, I perceived it as being powerless and and fighting against um, something that I did not want to have happen. Mm-hmm. So it definitely was assaultive. It definitely had that um, the sexual connotations to it because you're naked and because of um, the genitalia involved, you know, I, and I pay attention to that. I pay attention to how people define it, but I also think that, again, sometimes how people are defining it is based on on their own, uh, the things that they fight against. So um, if you had been fully clothed, if they had been uh, trying to, you know, vacuum your hair on the top of your head, right? Um, that to me has a different, that has a different feel. Um, much more vulnerable to be naked and having your genitals exposed, right? So that, that to me seems assaultive. It's amazing the lack of empathy when a man goes through it. There simply isn't any. I uh, was open about telling that story uh, when I was younger uh, in my 20s, and um, I would be completely dismissed. Like that was no big deal. There was never any shock or, oh, that's a terrible thing. And why do you think that is? And is and it, has that changed over the years? So, you know, what it, what, it, what it sounds like to me is some of that outdated, you know, boys will be boys kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, boys are just that way. They... Uh, but if you so flip the script, right? Like if you would have been a female and those those people would have stripped you naked and applied something to your genitals, right? Nobody would nobody would uh, blink an eye about thinking that that was a, a sexual assault. They'd call it gang um, rape. Mm-hmm. Period. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but we again, I, those those same kinds of things that we talked about earlier, um, m- you know, male stereotypes, military stereotypes, um, fear of uh, reporting for uh, potentially being labeled as homosexual back in in earlier years. Um, I think all those things come into play. So. And, you know, what is it about, right? You would know better than me because I was never active duty. But, you know, what is it about, uh, well, we have hazing things even at colleges, right? Like you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be able to take this. This is just part and parcel of our culture, right? Um, And for years, we would maybe look the other way because we would think it was just part of that kind of indoctrination into the military, Um, which I don't believe to be true anymore. And I don't believe it was true across the board either. There's, you know, there's bad apples everywhere. In the beginning, in training, when you're making the transition into, I am no, I'm 
morphing from a civilian to a military member, especially if it's within the combat arms trades, I think that there's a um, awkward stage where what is a warrior? What does a warrior act like? What type of, uh, what is funny to a warrior? What is the culture? And, and I believe that, that it is mistaken sometimes mm-hmm. by, by the hazing style things that, that happen that somehow this is what a tough person does, or this is what a wild, um, what a wild stallion of a human being does. And, and that's the fault of the military because they don't head it off at the pass. They don't address it. They don't, um, uh, talk about it up front. It's like, okay, you may have seen this in the movies or, uh, but just so you know, uh, that is not how we roll. And if you do it, you go to jail. So fricking don't, they don't, mm-hmm. they, they don't, they don't mitigate it. And, uh, so because of that, people are, are left to their own vices to, to figure out what's, what's the right thing to do here. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's where, where it comes from at the end of the day, it's a, it's a, it, the leadership sets the culture. Yeah. Right. And if they allow it, it's their fault. Mm-hmm. Cause they haven't headed it off at the pass. Where does somebody go for help? If they have, uh, a military sexual trauma. Where, where's the best place for them? Say in your neck of the woods in Florida. What's where does someone start? Where, what are some resources? Um, yep. So so every um, every VA has an MST coordinator, um, and so again, and you don't have to be service connected for any other condition to access that help. So you can you can call the VA and ask to speak with the MST coordinator, and <clears throat> and that starts that starts the ball rolling. Um, that person will uh, meet with the veteran and offer a, a host of of different um, options and help. Um, that also does access folks to um, to physical health care as well. Um, so that's probably the best bet. Um, and from there, the coordinator helps the veteran, uh, get connected with mental health, physical health, you know, those kinds of things. And if somebody is an active serving member and they're, um, extra concerned about anonymity, uh, what can you say to them that would make them feel safe to reach out? Mm-hmm. So, um, my experience with active duty was on an air force base and the, and each base also has uh, someone that serves as the person, uh, you know, to report to about uh, any uh, sexual assault, uh, sexual harassment. Um, at that level, there's two different ways of reporting. Um, one is completely confidential and the other is, uh, is, op- is a more open report when you're pursuing uh, uh, some sort of action. So the, the military member has an option of what they want to do with that. Um, if you choose not to have that open and open an investigation, you can still be seen by um, either the folks in mental health 
or um, I served in a role uh, that was a position uh, called a BHOP, B-H-O-P, which was a behavioral health person that was located within the primary care clinics. Um, And so I I could connect people with, uh, with services that way too. Are there any, and that didn't generate a mental health record. For the international audience, we're in 29 different countries now. Um, about 73% of, the, of uh, the audience is in Canada. Uh, about 23 is in the States. But for anybody that's not in the States, are there any other options that you're aware of as far as online options or um, sources of information, anything at all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can, if you go to um, the... Uh, va.gov site um, there is uh, well there are a couple pages there's a there's a PTSD page there's also an MST page and that can hook uh, folks up with resources that way um, there I mean and there are there are plenty of wonderful practitioners um, outside of the VA system that are trained in different modalities to work with this you know the the um, the treatments consist of the the same that we would use with um, with like combat PTSD. Um, you know the empirically based treatments that use um, uh, fall under that umbrella of exposure therapy. And there are lots of folks that are trained in those modalities. It's a matter of asking if they are. Um, you know, there's uh, cognitive processing therapy. There's prolonged exposure. There's uh, EMDR. Um, uh, those tend to be the, the treatments of choice for this as well. Um, the, the group that I ran actually used a book that was written for uh, it and has a workbook to it. Um, so there are people that can uh, look at those resources. It was called courage to heal. Um, and uh, I spoke with our um my uh, former MST coordinator at the Fargo VA, and she mentioned a couple of really good books, um, Joining Forces, Empowering Male Survivors to Thrive by Howard Franklin, and Victims No Longer by Mike Liu, L-E-W. Um, so my, my, you know, my, my experience, I, I didn't deal with the international population very much, so my, my references are are back to that VA website for the most part. And a great reading list as well. Uh, And of course the book you don't read doesn't help. So if you're, if you're not a reader, you can always get an audio book, but Dr. Sam Mills, uh, such an incredible topic and we will have to have you back on the show to talk more. Thank you so much for being on operation Tango Romeo. It was an honor. Thank you for having me. Thank you listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Many hands make slight work, and this is a big job producing this podcast, but I've got help, and the Vancouver Island Works Project has been providing a great deal of help by creating for me a premium website biwproject.com for a premium website for yourself don't go to just Wix or something like that where you bang it together everybody thinks they can do a DIY website and yeah you can but it's gonna be missing so much stuff if you want a K car 
go get a K-Car. If you want a Lamborghini, you go to VIWproject.com. Thank you, Manny Mandruziak, who I served with, who made this possible. Thank you for your support of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast, by providing us with a beautiful premium website. That website is operationtraumarecovery.org. Operationtraumarecovery.org is the website that they made for us. And viwproject.com is where you go to get one for yourself. Victor India Whiskey Project.com. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making peer support for post traumatic stress disorder easily accessible with a vision of a world where finding help and support is simple and the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. (laughs) 